KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you rate and review this podcast? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Please give us feedback. I read every single one of them, and I really appreciate you. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Now let's get to it. This week, Harvey Weinstein is on trial, but the days of reckoning for Me Too have already come for many. Men have really been having to hold themselves accountable. Some of them, you know, were repeat offenders. The impact of the movement on our region, the heads that have rolled, and the change yet to come. Then she was jailed and tried for killing a man that beat her. I gotta look at my daughter and I see him. All the time. A national newsmaker tells her story of acquittal and calls for change. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the impact of the Me Too movement. This week, movie mogul Harvey Weinstein, one of the faces of the reckoning happening during Me Too, he is on trial and we've seen heads roll nationwide and locally. Here in Philadelphia, this includes former Sheriff Joel Williams, former Philadelphia Parking Authority head Vince Fennerty, and many others, including top police officials who are now under scrutiny for sexual harassment. So, what has shifted and where are we headed in the age of Me Too? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Rebecca Reinhardt, Philadelphia City Controller. Her audit report exposed major gaps in city processes for reporting sexual harassment. We also have May Laramore Johnson. She's a survivor of sexual assault and a Me Too advocate. We have LaVon Kennedy. He's part of the Healthy Masculinity Initiative at Philadelphia Center Against Sexual Violence. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, Rebecca, I want to start with you. Your 2018 report exposed the millions that the city had paid for sexual harassment claims. It also exposed broken processes that left victims exposed. Explain what you uncovered and the change that you've seen happen since that report came out. Yeah, so... Uh, my office conducted the audit, as you said, in uh, 2018, came out in uh, July of 2018. And what it found was that the city um, was handling sexual misconduct claims in a very decentralized way. So over 50 different uh, departments were handling their own sexual misconduct claims. Mm. And because of that, uh, we found um, a system that was really broken in terms of how victims uh, felt in terms of reporting, um, if there was actually uh, a clear investigation, if um, you know if it was handled appropriately, and then discipline varied widely uh, between different departments for similar offenses. So we really found a system that was not protecting the worker, and we also found that the payouts um, were in the millions. Mm. And what what we found that over five years the city paid out at least $2.2 million, uh, probably more in settlements. And, um, you know, it really was problematic. So, uh, and I'll, just to back up for a minute, the reason that I wanted to do the audit coming into office uh, was um, 
the Me Too movement, but also the size of one of the settlements that the city paid, which was $1.25 million for a sexual assault uh, by a police commander on a subordinate. So there was real problems uh, that were detailed in my office's audit. And um, since then, there have been some changes by the mayor, um, some improvements, I think, uh, uh, though the 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 biggest uh, recommendations coming out of uh, my office's audit have not yet been um, implemented, and we'll talk um, more about that in just a couple minutes. But I, I just want to, um, Levon, over here. I want to go to you. What has been the impact on men? Because we we heard all this. This has been this dropped. Uh, we saw uh, some people have resigned. Some people have been replaced uh, since then. But has there been impact on men? I truly believe it's been an impact on men, um, and I believe it happens in dual ways. Uh, the first way is I believe that a lot of men are fearing the reprisal that comes with that. Um, the system of patriarchy that's been set up, uh, it's been used to benefit men and keep men in power. So uh, with the Me Too movement flashing um, a light on all of these um, all of these issues and uh, things of that nature, uh, men have really been having to hold themselves accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, men have been really having to do a level of introspection. Mm-hmm. And I believe also men have had to um, to do some level of um, looking in the mirror, as I like to say it. They've had to actually look at their own actions, uh, behaviors, things of that nature, and see how that has actually impacted others around them, as well as how that may have impacted uh, individuals who they may uh, actually care about. And May, you actually are part of the slew of women that helped begin this whole me Too movement, uh, sharing your story on social media using the hashtag Me Too. Tell us a little bit of your story and why you decided to do it. Um, I felt like my story was a little bit different than the typical, um, you know, kind of uh, workplace sort of focus or, um, you know, subordinate kind of relationship or, you know, even social um, harassment. And so mine was more of, sort of uh, like I was a victim of a home invasion. And so um, I was at co- I was in college at the time and living with a bunch of my friends. And um, what was significant about it for me was this sort of like loss of innocence. Like I just, I was your typical like 18-year-old yeah. like in college. And I remember one of our friend's parents said like, this isn't what college is supposed to be like for kids. And so... I felt it was important to address all types of victimization and just let people know that victims are everywhere. Yeah. And they look they all look very different. And I think the the power of the Me Too movement was how broad it was and that you, you realize that it's likely that the person sitting next to you has been a victim. And so that's kind of where it drew its power for me. Rebecca, back to you, because people have lost jobs. They've been shamed into quitting in a lot of respects, but there's a lot of more work. There's a lot more work to do. You mentioned gaps that some of the reforms have not been put in place. What are those and what still needs to be done? Sure. So two of the most important recommendations coming out of our audit uh, were to centralize the reporting Mm. and investigations of sexual misconduct claims. Because when you have um, the claims being handled within departments where typically the victim is junior 
to the alleged perpetrator and um, makes a complaint within a department. And the person investigating is not always very well trained in this Mm -hmm. field and also has likely known the alleged perpetrator for many more years than the victim. So you have the a, a large potential for bias and for uh, siding with um siding with the perpetrator. So a conflict a clear conflict of interest in the yes. current Yes. And the I'm saying process. this in a very um uh, not in an emotional way. It is an emotional topic, but what we need to do in terms of system change is to pull all of that out of the departments and centralize it mm. so that it's being handled by trained investigators and trained people that are actually going to do a thorough investigation and have discipline that is appropriate. So there's consequences. So that is the best practice. That is what my audit recommended that has to this date not occurred yet in the city. LaVon, I want to go back to you. You're part of the Healthy Masculinity Initiative. What exactly does that mean? And do you think it'll lead to more sensitive leadership by men? The Healthy Masculinity Initiative is a community discussion forum. While I was out in the community, I kind of saw there was gaps in how uh, men actually saw other individuals as victims, even saw themselves as victims at times. And when I say seeing themselves as victims, because of traits adopted within masculinity that tells men to be strong, fearful, I mean, fearless, powerful, taking charge, um, it leads to men having this um, having this particular stance on what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. So they kind of shelter themselves in, and they, I believe a lot of men hide behind this facade. Um, and... With that being said, I also believe that within the Healthy Masculinity Initiative, I was also seeing the gap of men seeing masculinity in a different way. And masculinity is very fluid. It can be a really positive thing. But nowadays, well, history has shown us that masculinity has been patriarchy and misogyny has been disguised as masculinity. And that's not, you know, that's not what masculinity is. Um, So, again, with the Healthy Masculinity Initiative, I thought that it would be a good idea to just bring together um, some community um, venues, things like that. So I would go to like North Central Victim Services, Mm. uh, places like Project Dad, where there are a lot of men reentering society and just, again, trying to get uh, some tools and awareness about how to just, again, become a better man and fit into society in a um, much more seamless way and being aware of other individuals' boundaries and things of that nature. So. Healthy masculinity is just that community conversation forum where I'm talking about boundaries, consent, victim blaming, bystander intervention, a lot of these topics that are not typically talked about amongst groups of men at times Mm -hmm. and using that to just plant and sow the seeds just so that men can at least see some of these actions and, you know, with rear view being clear view, understand how Mm -hmm. some of those actions may have impacted other individuals. People even said that they are ashamed Mm -hmm. now of some of the stuff that they did in college, you know, (laughs) in the 90s. Because you're like, you don't even realize because people were, you know, fraternities, people did all kinds of stuff. Movies have been made about it. And now we're realizing that it was wrong. And I know, May, you're raising a little boy. A uh, little boy and a little girl. Yeah. And so you <laughs> think about what was okay even five, ten years ago is not okay today. How does that shift the way you think about parenting? Well, you would think that I would be more fearful for my little girl because, you know, I'd be afraid of her becoming a victim. But I think 
everything is more in place as far as what I need to do for her as, as far as like what she needs to see growing up. Like, you know, her dad couldn't be a more solid role model for how a man should treat his family. Um, But with my son, you know, I'm just not sure. I feel like this is very new. I'm not sure what the path is going to be for him. I want him to feel confident and affectionate and I want him to be kind and respectful and I want him to uh, not be afraid to express himself with whomever he chooses to but I also want him to not feel entitled and so I think that's a difficult path to chart I want him to feel confident but not entitled and I and I think that's a very, you know, like you said, that's a very fluid thing. I don't think that there's a, a, a path. I'm just going to have to sort of be there and keep an eye on it. How do you even do that? Yeah. And and it's like, because, Rebecca, you, you identified all these issues. How do we change structures? But we, but a lot of it is culture. And that's something hard to, to audit, right? That's something right. hard to audit. But, but I'll ask you the question that I asked Rangita and you know, we've seen this reckoning. I mean, we got a new sheriff down, woman sheriff, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. We got, you know, our police commissioner ended up stepping down because sexual harassment claims were exposed within that department. Right. And we see, you know, all kinds of new heads of CEOs and all kinds of things because of sexual harassment claims. But how do we how do we make sure that all of this kind of trickles down and it's not just stuck at the higher, higher levels? Uh, and, and part of what you're trying to do is push it down to all levels of the city. That's right, is to protect the most junior of workers and the most vulnerable, right? Yeah. And that's what the the systems in getting the the systems that I spoke about, centralization in place, they do, right? That's That's what it would do is protect across the whole spectrum, not just protect those that have a larger voice because of their position. And and I do think that this is a culture shift. Culture shifts aren't easy. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. And the idea of reckoning that was being talked about and culture shifts are uncomfortable, right? So I think that's part of it too, is being able to be, to lean into the discomfort of the mm-hmm. moment and say, you know what, you know, there is a culture shift going on right now and we need to lean in and, and do more and to help people to protect people. We need to protect each other. Yeah. And training uh, has to be part of it. I mean, exposure, because I think the the big thing about your report that I think a lot of because people didn't know that millions of dollars in taxpayer money was going to hide and keep quiet sexual harassment claims. Right. And some some of them, you know, were repeat offenders, which it's like, wait, why are repeat offenders keeping their position and then settlements are being made out of taxpayer dollars. So that's a big part of the problem. I think that's such a great way to answer the question of like, why should I care? There you go. Right. It's a problem for everybody, whether you feel personally impacted by these stories or not, because I think there was a lot of reaction to me too about like, well, what, you know, I don't care. I don't, no one, no one's ever complained about me or that doesn't happen where I work or it hasn't happened to my children or anyone I know, but there's a larger impact there. Can I speak on that as well? Yeah. Um, I definitely feel like uh, Rebecca hit a major uh, vein right there when she was talking about culture. And for me, that was another reason why healthy masculinity was started because it shouldn't, the onus shouldn't be on the individuals who are affected by this to switch the culture. The onus should be on individuals who, you know, who are benefiting from the culture Mm -hmm. to actually um, do something to shift this culture. 
Um, it's, it's similar to like the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, of course, you know, black people are going to be screaming Black Lives Matter, but we need individuals who are, you know, doing these things and perpetuating these things against individuals who may be unarmed or be stereotyped um, in some kind of way to actually hold other individuals accountable in that way. And I got to ask a quick follow up question to you and then everybody, please chime in on this. Because one of the things that we've been seeing, too, is backlash. I've been told that some men are afraid to mentor women because they're afraid a Me Too claim is going to come, which then could lead to gender discrimination. Because if you're mentoring the men and not mentoring the women because you're afraid the women are going to Me Too you, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and, I say that, and, I, and I say it in a just the right, kind of right. way, but it's serious because... It, that's part of the backlash is that you now have men who are reluctant to mentor and promote women and to train women because they're afraid of, of quote, backlash. That for me is like, um, I don't get that, to yeah. be quite honest. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the really the easiest way I can put that. I really don't get that just simply because the way that I teach my young men inside of school how would you treat a friend that's your buddy inside of your home, like a friend, a guy that's your friend? Would if you would you you know try to come on to him, or would you just say, hey, would you like to you know uh, play play Xbox? Play or, yeah, you, know, you, you wouldn't yeah. do any of those things. So it's just like you just want to treat people humanely. You don't you don't want to go. You don't want to assume. Uh, you don't want to um, have any ambiguity of what boundaries are. You might want to ask for clarity. Um, this is not one of those things where, you know, yeah. women or the culture is out to get people. It's, it's, it's really simple. If you've done any of these things, you'll be held accountable. I would just <laughs> add that that statement of um, the backlash that men don't want to mentor women anymore because they're afraid of getting a Me Too, uh, having a Me Too moment or something. I mean, that's just men that aren't getting it. They don't yet understand where the boundaries are, which is problematic in and of itself. If they don't understand what they would do would be wrong to prom- to actually result in a, a woman or a, anyone saying that was you know inappropriate then that means they don't understand boundaries and that's a bigger issue so i think if a man is saying that to me i would say back and i have you need to understand what boundaries are and when you're breaking those boundaries in terms of space in terms of communication in terms of comments um anyway that that's what that's i i flip it and say back to them like, actually, the onus is on you to figure out your own shortcomings. <laughs> yeah, and, and I have to remind people who do feel that fear that treating people differently because of gender exposes you to gender discrimination. So you may move away from sexual harassment, but you can't treat your women subordinates different than your male subordinates who work for you because you're afraid of a Me Too moment. You know what I'm saying? You have right. to treat everybody the same, and that's part of what Me Too is. But I want you to comment here, mate. like... Part of it is women are being believed, you know, and and it's not a shameful thing anymore to share your stories and say this happened to you. What was that like when you see so many women sort of opening the door, talking about something that a lot of times we just kind of took and and, and just didn't tell anybody about it? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of why Me Too was seen as being impactful. I mean, when the police came for us, there was some mistrust of us and sort of some apathy. And and that was hard because our ordeal was very long. And, and so by the time the police came, it was like, thank goodness. And then, you know, having that sort of attitude immediately was disheartening and was frustrating. And so... Um, <clears throat> And to hear people sort of be believed and 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 trusted 
I think is is really important. And especially the moment they're heard, you know, you don't have to say it over and over and over again to a bunch of different people to get people to pay attention. And I think that's important. And also, I think it's important to tell your story. Part of my like therapy um, was to just tell the story over and over and over again so that it didn't control me and it wasn't so emotional. And so I could Mm. sort of reflect on it. And I think that's really important is also to just feel okay telling it. And now we've seen a shift. Women are now in charge of departments that were once shamed because of sexual harassment scandals. But will this really make a difference, though? In general, I think the more diversity, both gender and racial and ethnic diversity you have around the table, the decision making table, the better it is uh, for everyone. Um, It's not Though a very to me, it's not a simple answer that, oh, if you have a problem with sexual harassment and you put a woman at the top, then everything's solved. It it, it isn't that way, but mm-hmm. it is it is heartening. I mean, I'm um, looking forward to working with the new place commissioner when she comes. And I think that is um, that is a statement uh, that there's going to be a, a female head of the police department after all of the the issues around sexual harassment and an African-American woman, which is which is amazing, given the race issues there, too. Yeah. And then we also have a new a woman sheriff yeah. after sexual har- harassment claims were exposed from our, our past sheriff. That's right. A lot of women kind of stepping up in leadership. I mean, I have even have to say the Inquirer has a woman publisher now. I saw that. All these, I mean, <laughs> like women are just stepping up. But I got it ask another question to you, LaVon, related to men, because sometimes it's a culture issue. I mean, we've seen there was a, uh, a video that went viral, Hispanic men, uh, a Hispanic man in, in um, Kensington. It was a, a woman. Uh, he was beating this woman for an hour or something. And everybody was kind of looking and no one like stood up. And it was a cultural thing. How do you shift when there's in addition to you know, the culture of, of uh, misogyny or the masculine culture, toxic masculine culture. There's also other cultural barriers where you have religious issues, where there's structural things in households. The man is this, the woman is that. How do we break through all of that? Um, I don't think it's one correct, clear answer for any of that. I really believe it's really circumstantial. Um, it does depend on what culture you come from. For somebody like myself, me being African-American, there's a hip-hop is like a part of our culture. So that's one of those things where, you know, they are like, you know, putting out music that's, you know, again, uh, really just trashing women and, you know, discrediting victims and things like that. And just, again, painting this narrative of, mm. you know, um, Women seen as, you know, objects, objectified, you know, instead of um, being just subjects, you know, when I say subjects, just, you know, actually focusing on the person. On humans. Yeah, exactly. So Human people. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So that's really a tricky answer for me because I don't speak for all men, but but I do make sure I start in the corner of my world and again, try my best to just bring more awareness and enlightenment to other men about all of those things that I previously mentioned. So, um... I feel like that's just where we start at. We start with awareness. And we're starting that. I mean, people are definitely aware. And ladies, do you feel like there's real change? I do. I do. And I think even the naysaying, like like you were talking about the men who seem like overly resistant to it, they've heard it. And like the fact that they feel self-conscious about it is a good thing. I think ultimately that translates to just a little bit more thought before you, I don't know, tell a joke or touch a coworker. But that's... in direct hindsight of me too it's it's an overcorrection and i think the the end result will be 
will be lasting and will be sustainable and will be sort of, you know, this concept that the the boys club at the top is sort of over now. And because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. When you think back 20, 10, even five years, so many actions were much more acceptable than today. How do we ensure that the changes we are seeing from the Me Too are more than just a trend? I'm focused on, obviously, the city of Philadelphia. Uh, I think that we need to institutionalize the practices around uh, reporting and investigation. I think that would take something from a movement into an application in a large scale workforce. And I think that's the type of thing we need to do. Uh, I mean, my view is uh, more focused on my children, but it's a much more micro view. But I think raising my son to be confident and kind and um, to pay attention to the way people respond to him. And my daughter, I want her to be comfortable with herself and to trust trust in us and trust her friends and to speak up. I believe that, you know, I'm a trainer at heart, so I believe training is the way to go. And I believe also there needs to be a space for men to come into to disclose some of those things that they may not be comfortable with necessarily disclosing around individuals who maybe haven't been affected by this in some kind of way. And they want it, and they need to do that in a space without that fear of reprisal so we can work through. Thank you so much to Rebecca Reinhardt, to May Lara Moore Johnson, and to uh, LaVon Kennedy for coming on Flashpoint and talk about this issue in the news. Thanks for having us. Next up, she shot and killed her abusive ex-boyfriend and was thrown in jail. They should have found her not guilty in five minutes. The national newsmaker story that some say could spark change in domestic abuse cases. We'll be right back. If you like what you hear, stick around and listen to some past episodes of the Flashpoint Podcast. Some of our most popular podcasts include our debate over the Byron Allen $20 billion lawsuit against Comcast. We also did a recent episode. We also did a recent episode on forgiveness, especially in a world of cancel culture and gun violence. Also, be sure to check out our Flashpoint extras. Thanks all. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker first made headlines when she was locked up for killing her abusive ex-boyfriend. Latoya Ramsher fell in love with Devin Roy when she was 13 and he was 19, giving birth to their daughter two years later. Their 10-year relationship was rife with abuse, and on July 12, 2018, while under a protection from abuse order, Roy pushed his way into Ramsher's home, and she shot him with his gun, the same one he pistol-whipped her with a year before. She was arrested and tried for manslaughter and last December acquitted of all charges. With me to discuss this case is LaToya Ramshaw and her attorney, Michael Cord. Both of you, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So first of all, LaToya, how are you doing? I'm doing good today. Yeah? Yeah. You said today. Yeah. <laughs> Every half of my days, ups and downs. It's just been a lot of extra stuff, a lot of traveling, tiring, and just some days, I just be like, I just ready for everything to be over and done with and just be complete with everything, but it's not there yet. What has the last year and a half or so been like for you emotionally? Some days I'll be okay, then some days I'll be upset, and then some days I'll be mad, and then some days I'll be happy. It's just all over the place. It's a bunch of different emotions that I'll be having. And I just want to go to Michael real quick, and then we'll come back to you, sure. uh, LaToya, because I first heard about this case in 2018. You know, for folks who never heard of the facts of this case, why did you take it? Because it made national headlines. Mm-hmm. 
Three reasons. One, she's innocent. Two, she's poor. And three, she's black. And those type of people really need assistance when it comes to battling the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So a mutual friend reached out to me and said, hey, Mike, there's a young lady who has this issue. And I said, well, what is it about? He said, well, she killed somebody. I'm like, okay, I understand you contacted me because I handle murder cases, but tell me the facts. He says she killed her boyfriend who broke into her house and violated a protection order. And I said, well, if that's true, she wouldn't have been arrested. And he said, yeah, she was arrested. And as I began to investigate further, I'm like, that's exactly what happened. And then when I met her, she's not my typical client. Yes. My typical client is the quote unquote thug client. She is everything other than that. So, again, because she's innocent, poor and black, those are three reasons. Then once I met her and heard her story, yeah. and it's a tragic story, she needed help and I thought I could help her. And so let's take back to that day. This incident happens and we won't go into the gory details. You call authorities. When did you realize that you were going to be, this was going to be some serious trouble? Not at the very moment after it happened. Probably like five minutes after it happened. I just sat down and I told my mom, I'm like, mom, I'm going to jail. And I just felt like my life was going to be over after that. Were you immediately arrested? What happened? Yeah. They uh, took me right in the paddy wagon when they came. They gave you a bell. Yeah. Were you able to meet Bell? Yeah. I had people that came together and they, uh, from the Bell Fund community and they bailed me out. So the Bell Fund got you out. Yeah. The Bell Fund got you out. Your case had been compared to Satoya Brown's mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Uh, a woman who had been suffered abuse because you started dating um, your boyfriend at 13 years old. Y'all had had a, a very uh, abusive relationship. Did you realize that it was abusive? No, I didn't think that it was like that because I was so young. I just felt like that's what it was Mm because I didn't know nothing else. So, Michael, then she's in this situation. There was a protection from abuse order. Why did that? Why was that protection from abuse order in place? Almost a year to the day of the incident, he had brutally beaten her. I mean, not just with fists, but pistol whipped her. And she had these horrific photographs of busted lip and bloody nose and black eye. So based on that, that would have been July of 2017. The court issued an order saying, hey, you have to stay away from her and her home and her family for at least one year. So about maybe a week before the expiration of that protection abuse order, he sends the threat. He comes to the house. He bum rushes into the house. He knocks her down. He beats her up. He beats up her mother. She goes into the room where he's beating up her mother to say, hey, you got to get out of here. He then comes toward her. And that's when she was compelled to fire the shots. And if I can just add two quick things. One, because the lawyer is young and not a lawyer, she obviously doesn't understand the whole criminal justice process. Mm -hmm. Initially, there was no bail. And the reason that there was no bail initially is that she was charged with criminal homicide generally. And when you're charged with criminal homicide generally, that's anything from first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder, voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter. So they just didn't know which they one it would be. They didn't know which ones. And in Pennsylvania, you get no bail on first or second degree murder. So that's when the legal machinations came in, and I was able to argue at the preliminary hearing that clearly this is not first because no premeditation. It's not second because there's no felony murder, and it's also not third degree. And the reason it's not third degree is because there was no criminal intent. The only issue here is whether or not it was a manslaughter. 
I made the argument that it wasn't even that, but based on the Commonwealth's allegations, at worst, it would have been voluntary manslaughter. And for that, you should have reasonable bail, especially if you have no prior criminal contact. And that was her. Did you realize that your case, your situation, would resonate with so many people across the world? I knew that it would, but I really didn't think it would be this much effective on me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how did it affect you? That's, I just feel like that everywhere I go, people just talking about mm-hmm. they know who I am. And is that good or bad? Sometimes I think that is good because I want people to realize it, that you could not be here and stuff like that. And then sometimes I think that it's bad because I don't want everybody to know my business. But then at the same time, it's something that you need to talk about with people. Going through this, and I've, I've talked to other people who have been accused, put up in the media, and then later acquitted, but they, they still have to, to live kind of through this. What has been the toughest part for you living through this? Trying to get a job and do things the way that I want to do things is really hard. It's like pushing me back, not helping me get nowhere. And, and, and why is that, do you think? Because... When people run my name, they look at what's on there and they just like, oh, we don't want to work with her. But it's like you don't know me. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. the hard part. There are a lot of women who are in prison right now who were abused. Absolutely. Physically, Absolutely. emotionally, Absolutely. sexually abused yeah. uh, by someone. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's because of this interaction yes. that they're in prison. What you said uh, off mic before we start recording this, that. Uh, LaToya shouldn't even have been arrested or Mm -hmm. charged. Why? There's something in Pennsylvania called the Castle Doctrine. And the Castle Doctrine pretty much says that a man's home is his castle. In this case, a woman's home is her castle. It says that if somebody comes into your home, into your castle, to do you bodily harm, you do not have to retreat. Let's say you and I are on the street Um, Cherry, Cherry, and we're having an argument. And as we're having an argument, you threaten me, but I can easily turn around and go into my home. But I choose not to retreat. I decide to pull out my gun and shoot you. That's going to be a problem because I have a duty to retreat if we're on the street. But let's say I'm in my house and you come into my house with that same thing. I have no duty to retreat. So the law says that if you're in your home, an intruder comes, then you have the right to use serious bodily harm against that person. It gets even better. It also, that same law, the Castle Doctrine Law in Pennsylvania, goes on to say if the entry of the decedent is illegal, you have an even stronger argument against that person. So in this case, we had the issue of an illegal entry because there was a protection abuse order in effect. In fact, I was a little irritated with the jury, but ultimately ecstatic with them. The only reason I say this is because this was a no-brainer. They should have found her not guilty in five minutes. The deliberation took maybe about three or four hours, and there were a couple questions. And the questions all circled around the issue of, was the protection abuse order in effect at the time of the shooting? And it clearly was. And if I was asked to speculate, I'd say that there was somebody on the jury who said, well, the guy did beat her up. But then he left her and he went to beat up the mother and he stopped beating up the mother and she had the gun. So once he stopped beating up the mother, Latoya should have let him leave. That wasn't the issue because, again, as long as that protection abuse order is in effect, she has the right to use lethal force. And it wasn't as if 
He stopped beating her and stopped beating her mother and was about to leave. He beat her, beat her mother, and then moved toward Latoya as she said, Devin, leave. Instead of leaving out of the back as he easily could, he stepped toward her and she was compelled to shoot. One final thing I do want to say as a follow-up to a question you asked her. Yeah. Because, Latoya, this is traumatic for anybody. Mm -hmm. And you asked pretty much what happened in this case, and she filled in the blanks, but— This is exactly how it happened. The guy threatens to kill her and make the daughter an orphan. He then comes to the house. He pushes in the door. He knocks her down. He beats her up. He goes to the mother, beats up the mother. And that's when Latoya, by the way, the gun he was killed with was his gun. He left his gun in her house. So she goes into the bag. She actually left the bag by the door for him to take his belongings when he came and leave, but he didn't just take them and leave. So now he's in the bedroom beating up the mother. Toy goes into the bag, gets the gun, tells him to leave. He doesn't. He steps toward her. She fires five shots, killing him. And this is the thing that she didn't say as a follow up to your question. She went into a zombie like state. She, after shooting him, walks outside with the gun in her hand, just walking up and down the street. The mother's yelling to Latoya, Latoya, the police are coming. I just called the police. You just called the police. They're going to come here, and you're walking up and down the street with the gun in your hand. And do you remember those moments after? Do you remember that at all? No, I just remember going back in the house because I was trying to go in there to go get my mom. I don't remember that part. But I, like, remember it, but then again, I don't. Yeah. Do you still... Y'all have a daughter together. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel some kind of way about him personally, even though he's not here anymore about this incident? How do you feel about it? I feel a bunch of different things because I still miss him, even though that situation happened. I got to look at my daughter and I see him all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry to have asked you that question. This is a very... That's tra- an important question. Yeah, it, this is a very traumatic situation. How's your daughter doing? She misses it. Which is understandable. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you just posed the question you did because when... I can't disclose everything that Tori and I talked about, but one of the questions I repeatedly asked, I said, well, Tori, <clears throat> this guy has been physically abusing you since you were 13 or 14 years old. I said, why didn't you leave him? She said... I loved him. And I said, even though he did these things, she said, yes. I said, even after the shooting, she said, yes. I said, Latoya, how can you love somebody that you're afraid of? She said she didn't know. It just is. Yeah. And we talked about that at the very uh, beginning because being 13, I mean, 13 and 19, that's statutory rape. Absolutely. He's having sex with her at age 13 impregnates her at 14, yeah. she has the baby at 15. Did you even have any concept? Because you have a daughter who's, what, 10 now? Mm-hmm. And did you do you even think about her three years from now being with someone in this way? I don't want to think about that. I just want her to be real different from how I was when I was my age back then. Because I don't want her to have to go through nothing that I had to go through. Mm-hmm. So I try to talk to her. And stuff like that. And I think that she understands, but she's still young. Now, do you even have a concept of who you were at that time? I was just somebody that was looking for something that I wasn't getting. And now I feel like that I'm older. I know what I want out of life and I know how to go about getting it. So, yeah. Devin's family, his family, 
still the grandparents of your daughter, I understand that you had received death threats. It has that quieted down at all? Mm, it was bad at court, but I don't have contact with them. So I try to really not indulge into that because it's just nonsense to me. Because when he was here, none of y'all actually really cared. He was with me most of the time. So it was like, y'all just doing all of this now, and I feel like it's for attention, some of it. Did people know the abuse that was happening there? Probably just some people that I talked to, but no. They didn't know, but but people knew. Yeah. Some people knew. This case, your case, LaToya, shines a light on some major issues in criminal justice. What issues do you see here and can reform happen using this case as an example? I've gotten so many calls from women in state prison who've been convicted already of these types of crimes. Mm. They want me to file either a direct appeal to the Superior Court or a habeas corpus to the state Supreme Court or a um, PCRA. So and it's really funny because I'm telling them, hey, I don't really do this kind of case. I do death penalty murder cases. I normally don't deal with domestic relations, but I've gotten so many calls from so many family members of women in Pennsylvania state prisons. So there's a need for it. So even though it's not something I really, really wanted to do, I'm going to handle at least some of those cases. That's on what I really want to do. That's on the back end. The problem has already happened and now I got to go in and fix it. But the other thing I'm doing on the front end is reaching out to district attorney's office and saying, hey, I know that generally every DA's office has a charging unit. So a person is accused of doing something on the street. The police arrest that person. The police submit that report to the DA's charging unit. Mm. The charging unit decides what to do regarding what criminal charges. My suggestion is for the DA's office to have a separate charging unit specifically for domestic assault cases. So if there's a guy with the gun robbing people, selling drugs, okay, do what you normally do. But if there's a woman who's accused of killing an abuser, then we got to have something separate. And in a case like this, that separate unit would say there was an abuse order in effect, check. There was a threat by text, we have a copy, check. He broke into the house, we know that, check. He was shot with his own gun, check. We're not prosecuting this case because I said to the jury in my opening statement and closing argument, why are we here? And I meant that. So to answer your question directly, I'm working on some stuff on the back end for women who've already been victimized, who need appeals filed. And I'm also trying to get the DA's office coming with a different policy for these types of cases. Yeah. And I got to ask you this, Latoya, let's go back to the day the jury came back with this verdict. What was that moment like for you? A bunch of anxiety. Because it was a few hours, you had to wait, questions yeah. coming back. What Sitting there in that chair, just waiting. Yeah, it was, it was very nervous, nervous, mm-hmm. nerve-wracking. My anxiety was going through the roof. I couldn't sit still. And just, just knowing that my life is in these people's hands. Mm-hmm. Even though the law is the law, but you still got to look at everything else. Had you even heard of this? these doctrines that no. <laughs> Michael is talking about, the Castle Doctrine? Uh, and had you heard of any of these things? Did you even know that that was the law at the time? No, my field was medical. I don't do mm-hmm. nothing with law. Mm-hmm. And so when they came back not guilty, I mean, what was your reaction? I was relieved. I was shaken. A whole bunch of feelings. 
And so now that was 10 years of your life with this man. We started a new decade just days ago. What's ahead for you? Right now, I'm just trying to get myself together mentally and physically so that I can be what I need to be for my daughter because right now she's with my mom. So that's what I'm trying to do is just get myself back to where I want to be in life, doing good and being at peace and being able to do what I want to do when I want to do it and just living life. Do you feel like you're not at peace right now? And why? I'm still all over the place. And there's still too much stuff happening going on around me. And I don't want to let this situation go because I feel like it's not something that I need to let go. It's a lot of people out here that's going through the situation. And I feel like I know people personally, and I always try to tell them, like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to be in this relationship or even deal with it because look at my situation. Yeah. I understand how you feel about the person. You may got kids or whatever, but it's not worth the the headache, the trauma. It's not worth none of it. And so you you want to, in a way, it seems like you want to help women who are in domestic violence or victims of domestic violence. Yeah, I do. Do you see yourself as being the person you may have needed? Yeah. And I didn't think about it like that before, but now I'm starting to look at it like that. Because you don't have nobody that actually talks about it. It's closed doors on that situation, and it happens a lot. It just happened recently. And since my situation happened, I probably heard about 10 incidents since then and probably more. What's next, Michael? How do we, how does the public help? Because getting a job after Mm -hmm. acquittal is very difficult. Putting your life back together piece by piece is hard. Uh, It's a couple things. Uh, First, in terms of Latoya's life, I like to think that I'm well prepared as a lawyer. So before Latoya testified, we dotted every I, crossed every T so she gets on the stand. And it was shocking to me one question the DA posed her about her background and asked Latoya about her father. And many people say, okay, my father is Joe Blow. He's a carpenter, plumber, whatever. And Latoya said not only was her father not part of her life growing up, she doesn't even know who he is. Mm. And I was shocked, like, wow, I can see what happened to this little girl coming into becoming a young woman with no real direction. So that's one thing I found out about is that she not only had no relationship with the father, she doesn't know who her father is. And that's why I like the way you posed the question about Latoya being the person that she needed. Because despite going through all this hell in life, she was able to overcome all that. The other thing I wanted to mention very quickly in terms of employment, there was an article written about a week ago in the Philadelphia Inquirer by Jen Armstrong. A great article, so much so that it got the attention of several elected officials. And at some point the next week or so, I'll announce their names. But there's one city council person. There are three state reps and there are two state senators all of whom are helping her to get a job. So I'm hoping that within the next week I'm able to tell everybody she was able to get a job. Because I've been doing criminal law for so much, one case kind of blends into the next. But this is an aberration. So every time I go anywhere to talk about her case, I carry with me the verdict sheet. And this is the actual verdict sheet from her case. And I wrote down here that on Friday, December 19, 2019, at 12.56 p.m., the jury entered the courtroom. And we then had to stand up. 
And I never told Latoya this, but there must have been around seven, eight, nine deputy sheriffs who came to the courtroom. And normally they come to the courtroom because most times defendants are found guilty and have to be taken into custody. So you must but have I, been. I wasn't going to tell her that, but I have to admit, I wasn't nervous. I, I was really, I mean, I was confident to the point of arrogance. Just yeah. like I just knew that yeah. it was a no-brainer. The only issue I had is why is it taking you all so long to do what needs to be done? Um, you also asked a question about threats against Latoya. Another reason I found out afterward that the sheriffs weren't in there to take her into custody. They were in there because there were so many threats going around. And the court staff had found out about it, and they alerted the um, sheriff's department. That's the background, and I'm hoping that in terms of the future, things turn out well, because based on my contact with these elected officials, she will be fully employed, I'd say, within the next week to 10 days. And I do have to just say this, because as a journalist, I have to represent all sides. A man did lose his life here. There is a family that is still grieving, and so we don't want to ignore that. But I want to say to you, LaToya, moving forward, what's the vision for yourself so 10 years from now five years from now three years from now my vision right now at this very moment is to like for one get myself together for myself and then I do want to be out there speaking to people going to places and or traveling all over the world and talking to them and letting my story be heard even though I know a lot of people know about it but a lot of people probably don't know about it so I want them to know about it and talk to them And I want to do something about the law because that shouldn't be like that. And I want to be the face of that to change it. Thank you to you, LaToya Ramsher. Thank you to you, Michael Cord, for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. And I wish you Godspeed. I really do. And Cherry, thank you for not only being a great journalist in the questions you pose, but for being sensitive in posing the questions. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Next up, their volunteers produce 100 hours of on-air programming a week. Creating more spaces for dialogue. Billy Cam celebrates 10 years. How it all got started. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. We here at KYW, we are all about community and one local nonprofit's mission is to provide media education and public access to the broadcast airwaves. Philly Cam is a media center that focuses on teaching the community how to create their own quality content. And here to talk more about our Patriot Home Care Changemaker of the Week, Billy Cam is Gretchen Clausing, the Executive Director, and Lynn Webb, Radio and TV Producer at Billy Cam. He's also Vice Chair of the Board. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank, Thank you. you. It's great to be here, Sherry. Yes, Thanks. and I'm excited to have you here because I got to host the Cami Awards, and it was amazing. <laughs> there are so many talented people at Philly Cam. So let's back it up. 2019 was a significant milestone for the organization. 10 years. Yes. So the Cami Awards, which you so graciously hosted, is really kind of like our version of the Emmys yeah. where we get to really celebrate our community of producers. Philly Cam 
is an idea that really goes back almost 30 years. When cable was coming into the city, uh, what was supposed to happen was there was to be a public access television station so that anyone who lived or worked in the city could come and make their own content and distribute it on the cable network. Philly Cam got started after a long grassroots struggle to finally get the station established. So Philly Cam went on the air as a cable channel in October of 2009. So the Cammies coincided with that first decade of us being able to create really what I believe is more than just a public access television station. It's what you said. It's a community media center. We're a place where people come, they get training and they get support. And it really is about how can we create a space where we're bringing uh, folks together who may not have collaborated together, but are doing so uh, through the production of media and then thereby getting an opportunity to have voices that aren't necessarily being heard in great detail in kind of mainstream media, you know, giving them a platform. Yeah. And so let's back it up because Gretchen, I know you were there from the very beginning. I saw the tapes. And why, what problem was Philly Cam created to solve? You know, when Philly Cam went on the air, there was not a tremendous amount of representation of stories who were in more marginalized communities, Mm. communities of color. Oftentimes it was just sort of headlines and not necessarily going into detail around solutions or more positive stories. Uh, There weren't venues for just people using media in creative ways or or learning how to use media as as an organizing tool and, and a way to kind of bring us together and creating more spaces for dialogue. So people may come to us because they're interested potentially in learning how to be a television producer or radio host, but we're also helping people just being comfortable with technology. And that I think has been a really important role in what we do and, and also how we're able to support nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations with bringing more media into the work that they do so that they can better tell their stories. Yes, because I know that I've sent a lot of people to Philly Cam. I know that you guys work a lot with the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, bringing people in. And folks like Lynn over here has really gotten skills and grown after being part of Philly Cam. Most definitely. I came to Philly Cam in 2016 after just doing internet radio for close to like about seven or eight years in Germantown, being fairly successful there. But with Philly Cam, you're able to take what was just this small little internet thing talking about geeky comic book type of stuff and just doing it on a much grander, more professional level in a professional studio with like-minded creatives all working towards one goal. And then from there, just growing over the years, personally, my relationship with Gretchen and the leadership at Philly Cam, they felt trusted in me to elect me as part of the board of directors. When I was at the Cami Awards, people did animations, they did documentaries, they had talk shows, they had radio shows. I mean, it's like a symphony of things <laughs> all working together to create really great content. Well, and I think that's what's really fun and cool about it is that because we're public access and a community media center, we're not necessarily prescribed to a certain format. I think that that's what's really fun and vibrant about the space. And I think in our 10 years, one of the things that I'm most excited about is how we're developing more and more opportunities for mentoring Mm. and for helping people through the process because making media is is hard work. It's time consuming and and everyone at Philly came for the most part are volunteers. So it it can oftentimes be daunting. And so for us to be able to provide as many support systems as we can. So in addition to the basic training workshops that we have, and we have these meetup groups and, and a lot of opportunities for folks to kind of continue to find support. And I even heard people tell me that 
you know, save their life. And I have to say, one of the things I love about it is the affordability. It's like everybody can come in. You're probably mentoring people at this point. You've yeah. been in the game yeah. 10 years, longer than I've been in radio. Okay. <laughs> so you th- you think about that. I mean, and the, the community, talk about the community that you kind of built and, and been a part of at Philly Camp. It's like built into the culture. No matter how long you've been there, reaching back for people, it's very affordable, like you said. And membership is very cost effective. You can go on the website. And we have programs, if you cannot afford it, that we can take care of it for you. The beautiful thing about Philly Cam, as large as our membership is, there are people that are producers, but there are also people that always wanted to work a camera. They always wanted to be a screenwriter. Yeah. It seems like there's a place for everybody. So tell me, Gretchen, when you think about this community, what are you most proud of? I think I am just proud of the fact that between the radio station and the television station, our combined membership is producing over 100 hours of local content a week. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, people are feeling potentially disconnected Mm -hmm. or isolated. And to be able to enjoy and see some of the the positive stories is what makes me super proud. Amazing. So where can people go if they want to join? The one-stop shop to find out everything about Philly Cam is phillycam.org. Thank you so much to Gretchen Clausing and to Len Webb for coming on Flashpoint and go Philly Cam. Thank you. Another decade in the making. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As actor Ezra Miller once said, all revolutionary causes should start with addressing misogyny. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.